0: Textbooked,
1: we've all heard about. The bar raids, certainly Stonewall, is the kind of world famous one. And then the ones that came before it, like the Black Cat in Los Angeles, ones that came after, unfortunately, as well. The thing that's interesting about it to me is that place is such a reflection of what identity is. And so if people are congregating, then they're considered targetable.
0: listening to Untextbooked. This is a podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity.
1: There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly
0: am and where I come from.
2: We can better understand the trajectory we're moving
0: on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin,
2: And I'm Jenny Fan,
0: And you're listening to Untextbooked. Picture this. The DJ just dropped a remix of Beyonce's Break My Soul and Madonna's Vogue. The dance floor is full and the energy is electric. Maybe you'll meet the love of your life. or Maybe the only thing you'll walk away with is a pounding headache in the morning. Either way, the night is young and you're eager to see where it goes.
2: Now, what if I told you spaces like these are on the verge of extinction?
0: Wow, what a mood killer.
2: Right? Sadly, more than 50 years after the Stonewall riots, gay bars and clubs are facing mass shutdowns worldwide, erasing spaces that have been a refuge for many queer people. Growing up as a person of color in the Midwest, my identity often created challenges, to say the least. Many people can relate to my desire for solidarity. I was really surprised to see that gay bars, which have survived the AIDS panic and supposedly united the queer community, were struggling to find a footing in today's world.
0: On this episode of Untextbooked, Jenny interviews Jeremy Atherton Lynn, author of Gay Bar, Why We Went Out, about the cultural impact of the gay bar and how the gathering space created a generation of chance encounters that shapes not only his identity, but his life. Today, we take a closer look at what recent shutdowns of these spaces have meant for those who came of age in them and the new generations now seeking to define their queer identity.
2: Hello, Jeremy. Thank you for joining us today to discuss your book, Gay Bar, Why We Went Out. Thank you. Through this book, you walk us through the glitzy and at times gritty experiences gay bars can offer, while candidly acknowledging several of its faults. And you have mentioned to me that you do not really consider yourself a historian, but you are a writer and an essayist, right? Mm -hmm. And you've certainly done your fair share of cultural research. I think that your experiences and how you describe them also offer a very interesting like, primary source material, right? Yeah. I especially noticed that what really struck me was your use of smell in describing a bunch of the different locations. Why did you focus in on using smell to bring each scene in life the way that you
1: did? Yeah, it's, um, I know it's been said, it's been written about gay bar that it's sort of like I wrote it with my nose. I think probably the first sense that we think of besides the visual in gay bars would be sound, would be the music that's being played. And that's going to really differentiate one gay bar from another, right? So the typical thing would be to hear dance music and kind of presume that you're in a more sort of quote unquote typical gay bar. But smell comes to my mind right away, as soon as I'm thinking through the memories of where I've hung out. So an example would be the bar that I kind of eventually decide to declare as my first gay bar, even though there's some like, kind of wobbling with me making the decision of what that is in chapter two. The smell is of like really strong, sweet cologne, and that was popular at the time. And it's sensual because it gets you into a space in terms of trying to create a whole mood, which is like what writers do, you know, like trying to set a scene. But it's also another thing that has some kind of implication, some kind of almost a thematic implication. In this case, it would be that I was coming out and starting to go out in the 90s, which is in the wake of obviously the the AIDS crisis that specifically hit the population of men who have sex with men with such magnitude and there were various things about the architecture and the spaces of bars and the inhabitants of these bars that were sort of almost like defense mechanisms against any idea of contagion of something not being hygienic and so smell comes into it not only in a kind of sexy way sensual way pheromonal something that turns you on but in these ways that exhibit cultural patterns of behavior that might have to do with the kind of consequences of a given time and a place. In writing, they say, you should show, don't tell, and that smell is one way of showing that.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you for that answer. Since you already talked a little bit about your first experience at a gay bar, I just want to move forward a little bit. There was a period of time referred to in your book as the golden age of gay between the 1969 Stonewall riots and the AIDS epidemic in the 80s and 90s, as you mentioned. Mm. And for several decades, even now, San Francisco is considered an LGBT hotspot, one of the gay capitals of the world. That could be because of Harvey Milk and early sources of drag and its nightlife, et cetera. And so what drew you to San Francisco and what about the city made you want to live there?
1: It's funny. I... I say it's funny because I think one of my editors asked me the same question while we were writing the book. I think I felt like I would fit into the chaos of San Francisco. And it's chaotic because the density of the city leads to serendipity and it leads to surprise and it leads to making friends, if only for a fleeting moment, on the street. And I remember when I lived in Los Angeles and I would go up to visit San Francisco that I would have these experiences like dancing with <laughs> strangers on the street corner. And I wanted to be a part of that. And I think on a very personal level, I think I always feel a little bit of an outsider, a bit of an observer, a bit of a wallflower. But there's another part of my personality where I am gonna be like a person who gets up on a chair and dances on a bar. And I think I thought that San Francisco was the place for me to become something more, more liberated. I grew up in the Silicon Valley. My dad's a computer guy, you know, and when you grow up in the Silicon Valley, you feel like you're in the shadow of San Francisco. I found it as a kid to be kind of a dark place because there was so much homophobia and there was so much fear of AIDS and that associations with San Francisco were there was a real squeamishness about it. I remember hearing a comedian, the joke was, they say that in San Francisco, one out of three people is gay. So if I look to my left and I look to my right and they're not gay, I am. That was the joke, you know? It's the kind of thing that you hear as a kid and you just think, oh my God, are they talking about me? And in San Francisco, it was the location of, from the inside almost, for a sense of liberation from the outside, a sense of fear and squeamishness. I remember another incident. My family went to San Francisco for a Chinese New Year parade. And because by that point in time already there was some kind of integration between different cultural populations in the group, there was like a gay float in the Chinese New Year parade. And I remember feeling, I, I remember the float going by and it had like drag queens and flamboyantly dressed men you know, it was so colorful and happy and all that kind of stuff. And my sister, who was a little kid, was like, eh, happy. Like, you know, kids kind of love gay, like how they love sort of drag queen story hour and stuff. She loved the fabulousness of it all. But I was like holding my sister back. Like she was like wanting to jump on the float, and I was holding her back. Like my own kind of internalized homophobia came out. And that that moment, I mean, I haven't thought about it for a while, but it really was kind of something I had to revisit later and think, oh my God, like what had happened, it was sort of innocence had gone that my sister still had because she's six years younger than me. And she just saw people in sequence having a good time. And I saw something that I thought you were supposed to be wary of or stay away from.
2: So shifting gears a little bit, numerous times you observe a tension between gay bars and people of authority. I especially really enjoyed the anecdote of the drag queen Adrella using bags of fake blood to scare off police Mm. in one of London's taverns. Mm. With regards to this tension, would you be able to add some perspective on how gay bars became battlegrounds for queer
1: rights? Oh, sure. I mean, I think one of the kind of moments in the book that's a kind of a little micro-historical moment is when an article was published in Life magazine, and I believe it was in 1964, that was kind of supposed to be exposing gay, like underground gay culture, and kind of in a sort of fear-mongering, quite squeamish way, but actually wound up sort of inviting a lot of gay men to kind of immigrate, as it were, to gay capital cities. So New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco, and especially San Francisco, are the places that are mentioned there. And there's a historian, Martin Meeker, who describes how that article really kind of put forward a message. A lot of people hadn't heard the word homosexual before, like they might know that they had those feelings, but they might not know that it had become an identification and that there was a language around it, problematic language in many ways at that time, certain terms that people use, but still that there was a language around this way of life and this way of being in the world. And very... Quite uniquely, or, you know, it happens in all kinds of different publications, but very uniquely in this time and space for gay culture, that identity was related to a place, a gay bar, and to cities that had sites of gay socializing. So the smackdowns were going to be a kind of inevitable result of those congregations. And so I think that's what I'm interested in. I mean, I think we've all kind of heard about the bar raids, certainly Stonewall is the kind of world famous one. And then the ones that came before it, like The Black Cat in Los Angeles, and ones that came after, unfortunately, as well, But yeah, the thing that's interesting about it to me is that place is such a reflection of what identity is. And so if people are congregating, you know, then they're considered targetable. There's a line in the book where the famous San Francisco newspaper journalist Herb Cain says, don't be a poor one, don't be a poor anything. And he's talking about gay men who don't have the luxury of having private enclaves where they can hang out and be sort of wealthy homosexuals, but that they have to meet in public places because they don't have the private spaces where neighbors won't be prying through the thin walls and the windows. And so it becomes a class thing as well. So it's much easier to target people who aren't wealthy because they're likely to kind of need these spaces as social places, whereas other higher class people might have access to socializing in domestic spaces. One thing that is interesting is how the lines can potentially blur. So like in San Francisco, there is a kind of a moment where the Twin Peaks Bar was a part of this organization called the Tavern Guild. And they had this kind of ostensibly positive relationship with the police and they had a softball game. And it was kind of like, it was meant to be this kind of good natured coalition between previously warring factions. But then subsequent to that, there were, in the wake of the assassination of Harvey Milk, gay people protested. And then there were mass, there's a mass uprising and police retaliated brutally in the Castro. And it might be a coincidence, but they did kind of spare the Twin Peaks bar and hit up one down the street called the Elephant Walk instead, where they wielded their batons and smashed windows and were up to no good. So I'm interested in the fact that sometimes these kind of moments of reconciliation happen. And then in others, those very truces are revealed to be more fragile than we maybe would have liked to think. And then also, I mean, there's a lot of self-policing that goes on in spaces. It goes on today in various ways about what kind of qualifies as inclusivity, but you know, back in the 60s and 70s to return to San Francisco and the Twin Peaks Tavern, that was a no-touch bar. So that was a hangover from the legal opinions that had come in previous decades regarding the Black Tavern in San Francisco. But there was a hangover from that where you were kind of allowed to be gay together, but not do gay things. And the women, Peggy and Mary Ellen, who ran the Twin Peaks bar, were pretty strict because that bar had big plate glass windows and everybody could see, and so you weren't supposed to canoodle. You really weren't even supposed to touch each other and show signs of affection. So there's a self-policing that goes on as well. And yeah, it's interesting microcosm of what it is for citizens and police to interact with each other in spaces that obviously still continues with great, (laughs) great tension and massive repercussions today in
0: all kinds of circumstances. So gentrification also plays a role here. Exactly.
2: In the end, despite marketing and even the history behind them, gay bars are businesses that cater towards a particular client. Mm. I'm glad you brought up like the class thing and the wealthy, privileged nature of gay bars. Can you talk a little about the privileged nature of gay bars and who was denied the privilege of enjoying them?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's one of these things that's it's hard to speak to in general terms because it's going to vary so much and there's always been exceptions. The Black Cat which I mentioned earlier as setting the legal precedent of having the right to gather. It wasn't really a gay bar, it's like kind of how gay people went, but I don't necessarily know if it would be a (laughs) self-identified that way until it becomes a court case, you know. But that was a meeting spot where different factions, sailors of whatever sexuality and poets and drag queens specifically the performer Jose Saria, might go. And in North Beach in that era, there were actually quite a few lesbian bars as well. And there might have been some kind of flow between. But certainly, there, gay bars, It's it's funny. There's a kind of... Default presumption that you can call a gay bar a safe space. And I don't really know when it had developed that that was the kind of common assumption. Because even though, of course, they afford refuge in many ways, they also are a target. Just look at something like the massacre at Pulse in Orlando a few years back. But also, they haven't always necessarily been a safe space in terms of people of <laughs> that just don't happen to be heterosexual being very kind or inclusive to each other. You know, one of the kind of foundational stories that I tell in the book is about the policy of asking for multiple forms of ID specifically to people of color at venues in Los Angeles, including a disco called Studio One. And people have different opinions about this, but, you know, there were kind of sort of gonzo journalists would sit by the door and and do a head count of who was being hassled and kind of given a hard time and basically being turned away for not having an unreasonable amount of identification on them. But... I think the dangerous thing would be to presume that that's a thing of the past. So even though we're talking in that case about the 1970s, still in the 1990s in my chapter about East London, it's present at a place called the London Apprentice, which was a popular gathering spot for particular for kind of a leather cruisy scene a few years before my time there in East London. But the way I get into it in the book is because I happen to have this pub sign (laughs) because the landlord of my flat picked it up when that bar was being changed into a gay bar, picked it up off the street, and now it's in my possession still. But yeah, anyway, the, The London Apprentice... Everybody, You know, once I had the pub sign, people would come over of all generations and kind of wax nostalgic over it. And everybody has a story, a lot of good time stories and quite a few scandalous stories. But there was also horrible stories. There was so much violence at the door. There was a real spate over the course of one year and of gay bashers waiting at the door. And then to complicate that, there was a kind of skinhead movement in London at the time, a racist skinhead movement that included gay men. And it's one of these situations where it's kind of like an intersectionality that's sort of inconvenient to think about, but exists. And so there was, you know, there's one particular incident that's spoken about in the book where Black men is attacked by gay skinheads within the club. And so I think it's really important to kind of, you know, we kind of think about these spaces as being safe spaces, but that there can be tensions within a given population once you pass what's supposed to be a border.
2: Yeah, for sure. You also talked a little bit about like the whole open window thing. I know there was a growth in quote-unquote no-touch bars and the general desexualization of gay bars, especially in San Francisco, and that was at least partially prompted by the AIDS epidemic. Because of this increased sense of wholesomeness, you mentioned that the gay bar had been beaten into submission. Mm. What do you think is essential to what a gay bar represents, and why was this new, agreeable marketing a hit to its identity?
1: Mm, Okay, that's a big one. Right. So we're speaking about a kind of upbeat, anodyne, gay identity, what you might call respectability politics. Mm. Putting your best foot forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the no-touch bars, the ones that I'm speaking about in San Francisco is actually kind of predating AIDS. It's more about avoiding Police crackdowns and losing one's business license and all that kind of stuff. So it's really just about the right to exist at all. And then, yeah, subsequent to that, there's a kind of slick aesthetic that goes along with what the urbanist Johan Anderson has called hygiene aesthetics, a kind of look that you're not going to catch disease in a given space. But I think fundamentally, what gay bar is about, or what kind of any subject matter that I approach is about, is bearing in mind that any given institution or subject matter isn't just one thing. So I think it would be hard to say what a gay bar does or should represent. It depends on the bar. And there are certainly places that still thrive and are magnets because they have something about them that feels subversive and maybe a little gritty and maybe perverted and embraces that and creates a kind of environment where that's its own sort of safe space. But the relationship between business and civil rights is one that I think I can only approach with a sort of um, interest and ambivalence because there's never like an ideal set of circumstances. Like maybe we wish that all of these things had happened within a kind of socialist utopia, but that wasn't the circumstances that they were operating within. And maybe the lack of liberation for queer people, for non-normative people was a result of these capitalist systems. So you could say it was cyclical. But at the same time, within those systems would be these ways that people have found a boycott in a certain beer company or whatever like that that flex a bit of muscle and work within these business systems in order to kind of advance civil rights now of course it's become so exacerbated at this point in time that it's rainbow washing it's so corporate it's kind of impossible to see without a dose of cynicism that there's like rainbow flags all over your bank or companies that are trying to sell you things that you don't need and all this kind of stuff
2: what do you think future generations and even my own generation might miss out on with the decline of the gay bar?
1: Well, there's a couple of different ways that I think about that. I mean, I think, you know, Jenny, you're really like at an inconvenient age range to go through lockdown. <laughs> I don't envy you <laughs> because that's when you're supposed to be experimenting and taking risks and hoping that you might be surprised by what the night has in store or, you know, if you're not a night person by what the day has in store and just being out in the world and meeting people and being surprised by people. And it coincided with social media, which in a way was like a lifeline to people. But in another sense is this way of just constantly reiterating that we kind of just have this vision of ourselves that we're presenting to the world rather than being a dialogue between different people. I don't really know how to answer the question about how Queer people are going to socialize because I think it's not really for me to say. I think the options are limitless and young people are resourceful and entrepreneurial and and are always gonna find a, a way to energize their social interactions. So I don't necessarily think there's gonna be like an end of fun, but I think my mind goes instead to the emphasis that we place on social media. And the fear that that kind of way that we interact with each other online, that we kind of, you know, curate our grid and then expect that that's the way that other people receive us and block people if they have a different opinion or just are horrible to each other and make mean comments or bullying like all that kind of stuff is just seems like detrimental to a form of socializing that is more flexible and has to do with chance and just. The kind of meaningfulness of meeting people that you weren't expecting to, rather than what an algorithm leads you to.
0: That's really powerful. Social media has radically changed how we interact.
2: Yeah. It's really interesting to think about what or who we might be missing out on.
1: But that said, I think the kids will be all right. I think they're going to have fun. I think they probably just need to... (laughs) to have access to be able to feel healthy and get past global pandemics. (laughs) I know it's a little optimistic and to be able to socialize in spaces together. But the thing that, as a kind of counter to that, the thing that I think about are an aging population and how elder gays will socialize because in a way, the loss of a space, the loss of an institution like the gay bar is more significant to people who that's what they're used to. And those are the places where they have Traditionally thought refuge, sought each other out, that they have a particular language system, social codes, traditions that are embedded in their sense of of well-being. So, yeah, that's where my mind tends to go is, like, gay retirement centers.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Do you have anything you'd like to add before we begin wrapping up?
1: Hmm. um... I think really I kind of emerged from this book with a real feeling of the importance of coalition as opposed to um, a kind of dogmatic kind of identification with a particular group, population group for any particular reason, whether it be sexuality, gender, race, politics, et cetera. I think the kind of where I'm at in a personal way is just trying to figure out how we can form coalitions. And I think that comes quite naturally in a way to me, as a mixed race person, as an immigrant, as somebody who's the son of an immigrant, that there's a kind of intrinsic like genre crossing. Like people say that my writing is like kind of a mix of genres in terms of like cultural criticism and memoir or whatever the categories might be. But that's like a part of my life experience, too, in terms of like trying to figure out what different language systems exist within the same household, you know? And I think, my hope is that that isn't necessarily an obstacle but that is kind of a springboard and for a lot of queer people, gay, lesbian, trans, all kinds of people who fall you know generally under the alphabet umbrella, there's a kind of common experience of probably not having queer parents and so that there's a kind of like mm, historically we've said there's a model of somebody who's got your same identity in the household but I think as we create more liberated households, that mix becomes a part of what leads us to what I'm talking about, which is like larger coalitions, if that makes sense.
2: Thank you so much. That was a very introspective, lovely answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you, Jeremy, for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much, Jenny. So Jenny, what'd you learn from this conversation?
2: I learned that events like the pandemic alone will not kill gay bars. However, discriminatory tendencies and resistance to change will. Hopefully, this simply means there is more room for increasingly welcoming queer spaces in the future.
0: I hope so, too. Thanks so much for sharing. Our producer, Jenny Fan is a sophomore at Columbia University. Jeremy Atherton-Lynn is an Asian-American essayist who has contributed to several publications, including Art Forum, The Guardian, and GQ. You can find him on Instagram at Jeremy Atherton Lynn. That's J-E-R-E-M-Y-A-T-H-E-R-T-O-N-L-I-N. We've included a link to his work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Next week, we're looking at the role technology plays in our lives, the good and the bad. It's really hard to see any daylight between human beings and computers and computation in general now. And that's where I think our critical attention needs to be. It's not simply that you can use computers to do bad, you can use computers to do good. It seems to be that computers and digital media generally achieve such a pervasiveness in language economy and warfare and popular culture. And what does that mean? What do we want to do with that information? If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org, and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with pod people, Anne Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tindall, and Michael Aquino. Fernando Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening.